this is Candace Pringle, lead pastor of FE Church, and this is our podcast. All right, so light the fire, number two. This is a series that I've been excited about since November. It's been on my heart, and I'm pumped to finally get to share it with you all. I feel this release after I get to share a word like this. So last week, we talked about the presence of the Holy Spirit, how it comes like a fire and all the different representations of the fire in the Bible, how he brings presence and purification and passion and purpose. And over the next four weeks, we're basically going to dive deeper into that last one, purpose, why the Holy Spirit comes, why he came in a brand new way on the day of Pentecost, why he's now available to every believer What's the purpose of all of that, right? We see the church in the book of Acts leaning into that purpose. And so we're going to cover the main four to five things that the first church, the book, the church of the book of Acts, uh, the, the things that they did after being baptized in the Holy Spirit as a group for the first time in history. Now, see, it's not the first time in history that anyone was baptized in the Holy Spirit. I I was astounded the first time I saw this in the Word. Like, I grew up in an AG church, Assemblies of God church. I I grew up being baptized in the Holy Spirit. And I thought the day of Pentecost was the first time, the only time, that the Holy Spirit had come. But then as I grew up and got older, I started to read through the Old Testament. And I realized it's not the first time in history The first time I saw this in the Word was actually when I read about Saul being anointed king. Does anybody remember this story? Um, It's 1 Samuel 10, I believe, where he gets anointed king, and Samuel basically tells him, you're going to have this weird experience, okay? Prepare yourself. There's going to be some instrumentalists that come, and you're going to dance around a fire and prophesy and basically have a weird experience. That's, That's what he tells him, and I'm like, Sounds a lot like getting baptized in the Holy Spirit. I I don't know. I've read through it like three times. I'm like, yep. Saul was definitely baptized in the Holy Spirit. Years and years and years from the day of Pentecost. It actually literally says that Saul was transformed into a new person. Turn out well for Saul. In the end, he was disobedient and the Holy Spirit left him. The Bible actually says, and a tormenting spirit came. But you also see it in 1 Samuel 16. It says, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully then upon his successor, David. And so it's there again. He was baptized in the Holy Spirit. And so throughout the Old Testament, we do see him. We uh, see him come more on leaders and prophets, not just everybody. He's not available to just everyone until the day of Pentecost. Now, I mentioned last week how bold and brave Peter was after being baptized in the Holy Spirit versus how cowardly he was before, right? He denied Jesus three times when it mattered most. When the heat was at its most intense, he ran away. He hid. He denied him. But after being baptized in the Holy Spirit, he's, it's almost like he's a different person. And, and so that's the passage that I want to read to you today. I want you to see this. We're going to read most of Acts 2 and just feel this moment together, how, how life-changing it would have been for Peter. So on the day of Pentecost, Acts 2 verse 1, all the believers were meeting together in one place. 
This part is important here. Okay, we're going to come back to this during this series. The early church gathered together a lot, something that they did a lot. And so we're going to come back to that in this series. But on the day of Pentecost, all the believers were meeting together in one place. Suddenly, there was a sound from heaven like the roaring of a mighty windstorm. This is one of the bigger suddenlies in the Bible. You hear people talk about the suddenlies a lot, right? Have you ever heard that before. There, there are a few others throughout the, the word, but this suddenly is a direct result of the people of God being obedient and waiting. They were waiting for something. They didn't exactly know what and just waiting. They were just being obedient. Suddenly God moved and he opened things up and the Holy Spirit was released and he changed all their lives for the better. But it wasn't actually all that surprising though because Jesus told them to wait for the helper. Do you remember? When right before Jesus ascended into heaven, he said, wait, there's a helper coming and you will receive power to be my witnesses, right? Suddenly implies a surprise, but it wasn't really all that surprising since Jesus had told them to wait and they were being obedient. We often wait and wait and wait and we start to lose faith, don't we? But things can happen suddenly when you wait upon the Lord. Things can change in an instant. Seas can part. The dead can rise. The sick healed. A savior sent. A coin in a fish's mouth. (laughs) Right? An earthquake to open up the gates. We see these suddenlies happen throughout the word a lot to God's people who are waiting for them. When we're obedient, God can move. And being obedient often requires waiting. I know multiple people who are waiting for the baptism of the Holy Spirit right now. And I can't often pinpoint exactly why he makes some of us wait. I do see, however, people going through a process of of sanctification, which means of um, becoming holier as you go. It's like God sort of pulls things out of your life just a piece at a time when you're ready to deal with them and says, hey, maybe we need to clean this up, right? Maybe this needs cleaned up. Maybe some forgiveness here or some obedience here. But I want the best for you. Let's clean this up. And then the Holy Spirit can come. I, I I can't tell you the exact process. I can just tell you that's how it often happens. When we fully trust him, when we give him complete control, and it's a process, but when we're finally able to do that, you know, something was bothering me a lot this week. People, people like to say that God is in control. Right? It's something we throw around a lot. Well, God is in control. <laughs> the problem with that is, yes, God is in control of the big picture, Right? Someday he is going to come back and it's like end of days type of control that we're talking about. He is in control of the big picture. But the everyday stuff, he gives us free will, right? He's not in control of my every decision or your every decision. He gave you that control. In fact, love couldn't exist without free will. Right, So for God to give us the love that he gives so generously, there has to be free will. And so we are in control of our decisions. People throw around God is in control as if all the bad things that happened to me in life were supposed to happen because God made them happen. 
it gets unbelievers really angry for good reason because it's terrible theology. <laughs> right? It leads us to a place where we're now blaming God for all of the terrible things that have happened to me. God didn't do those terrible things to you. He doesn't want that for you. Humans did those things because they're not within the will of God because they haven't given him complete control of their lives. We do them to each other all the time because of our own sinful nature not God's, right? He's given us free will to do with what we want. You are in control of your life. Your decisions are by far the biggest factor at play, not the only factor, but by far the biggest factor at play in your life, unless you give that control back to him. When we tithe, for example, we're giving that control to the Father, Right? He says, uh, bring me the whole tithes. Malachi 3.10 says, bring me the whole tithes. Test me in this and see if I won't throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing, you won't even be able to handle it all. That's his control now. When I tithe, I enter into his storehouses, not mine. When I don't, I'm holding all of the control for me. I control my life. And, and it's almost like you're saying to God, I think I can do it better. Give control back to him and watch how he floods your life with good things. When we're generous, he gives good things back. When, when we return blessings for curses, and Jesus said return blessings for curses. Now, I often want to return curses for curses because I think it's up to me. When the, the, remember the prayer we talked about last week, Acts 4, 29 and 30, where they prayed, not God protect us or keep us safe. They prayed for boldness in preaching. God, hear their threats and give us boldness. They were saying, God, you're in control, not us. Hear their threats, do with them what you will. Just give us boldness to keep preaching. The Holy Spirit, something about him entering your life does have to do with us giving control back to the Father. When we pray instead of worry is another example. We want to worry and worry and plan and prepare. And God said, what's the, the proverb that says, um, worrying is like borrowing tomorrow's troubles. Don't borrow tomorrow's trouble. <laughs> today has enough of its own. I pray about the things that you need for today. And I think this is why Jesus, he taught us to pray for daily bread. <laughs> Not bread for the whole week or bread for the month or bread enough for the year. Today's bread, just today. Worry about today because you don't know what tomorrow holds. Let the Father worry about tomorrow. You worry about today. So when we pray, we're giving that, that control back to God. Does all that make sense? In this case, they waited when it probably felt like they should run. The, the heat in Jerusalem at this time was intense. They had just crucified Jesus, but for some reason, this darn movement was not dying with him. <laughs> it was growing. And the Jews and the Romans, they, they probably felt very out of control at that moment. And the Christians were probably sweating a little bit. Probably took a lot of obedience and patience to stay when they felt like running. In this case, they waited and they were rewarded with the rest of verse 2. Let me just finish verse 2. Suddenly there was a sound from heaven like the roaring of a mighty windstorm, and it filled the house where they were sitting. Then what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them. And everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave them this ability. 
The Holy Spirit can still give this ability today. This is what we call speaking in tongues. I have heard, I have not personally heard, but I have heard of people speaking in other earthly languages that they don't know. It's like me waking up and being able to speak Spanish. I would love that ability. But I haven't heard of anyone doing, I guess because I'm mostly around English speakers, but I have heard of it happening. I, I most often hear people speaking in heavenly languages. Right? I don't know what it means. Most of the time the speaker does not know what it means. It's usually between them and God in prayer form. But I have been praying in tongues since I was a kid. I use it when I don't have words for a problem. I have emotions, but I don't have words. I pray in tongues. When I feel lost, I pray in tongues. When I'm asking the Holy Spirit for an extra dose of anointing or gifting or help, I pray in tongues. When I don't know what else to do, it's like an anchor to my soul. I feel like I'm communicating with God in a way that is unique between me and him and nothing else. I have heard of pastors almost prescribing it like for problems. Like, you need to do more praying in tongues. <laughs> Lock yourself in a room and pray and just ask the Holy Spirit to come and see what happens, you know? But <clears throat> it is uh, something incredibly special. And I think that's why the enemy comes against it so hard. There are so many Christians who would call it heresy or, you know, horrible theology or whatever. That was only for the church of the book of Acts, not for us today. But no. It's for the church of today because we need it just as much as they did then. It is useful and helpful in ways you can't even quantify or put words to. Ask, if you don't have this ability, ask the Holy Spirit for it. He will give it to you. I've heard of people getting baptized in the Holy Spirit in the middle of the night in their bedroom all by themselves or in their car on the way home from church or up here around the altars. It's, it's not a um, one-size-fits-all type of thing. Just ask God for it. And like I said, sometimes he leads us through this process of really giving him control, full control, not just lip service, but full control. But he will answer you. It is a gift from heaven that God wants to give you. Amen? Verse 5. At that time, they were devout Jews from every nation. There were devout Jews from every nation living in Jerusalem. When they heard the loud noise, everyone came running. And they were bewildered to hear their own languages being spoken by the believers. They were completely amazed. How can this be, they exclaimed. These people are from are all from Galilee, and yet we hear them speaking in, their, in our own native languages. This was a, a very multi-ethnic city, and piece of the city in particular. Here we are, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, people from Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, the province of Asia, Phrygia, somebody say Phrygia. I had to look that one up. Pamphylia, Egypt, and the areas of Libya around Cyrene. Visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism. Cretans and Arabs. I dare you to say all that 10 times fast. And we all hear these people speaking in our own languages about the wonderful things God has done. They stood there amazed and perplexed. What can this mean? They asked each other. Listen, I think this is the point right here. This question asked by unbelievers in a place where the Holy Spirit can answer is the point. This is why the Holy Spirit sometimes chooses to demonstrate his power in weird and wonderful ways to get us to wonder. 
What can it mean? To open ourselves up to the possibility that there is more out there, that there is a God and he actually does love us and care about us. I think this is the point of prophecy too, by the way. I just, can I be real honest with you? I've always struggled with prophecy in general because like, why send it if I don't know what it means fully? I think it's like my type A personality. I want all the steps. I want God to tell me like, do one, two, three, like in order, give me all the... Prophecy gives you like this tiny little picture and it never works out the way you think it's going to work out. (laughs) It frustrates me. Can I be honest? But I think this is the point to get us to look for the answer, to get us to wonder. Like the book of Revelation, some people try to figure every single piece of it out. You just won't be able to till it happens. Sorry to burst that bubble, but it's not a bad thing to read it and to study it and to try. As long as you know, you're not going to figure it all out. In fact, the Jews of Jesus' time, the Pharisees in particular, thought they knew that they knew that they knew. They knew every prophecy there was about the Messiah, and they still missed him when he was right there in front of them. So I've struggled with this, but I think this is the point to get us to wonder, to get us to ask questions and, and look for God. I think this is why revivals break out in places too, like the situation going on in Asbury right now. Have you guys heard about this? To get people wondering. So many people right now are wondering, what's happening there? Are we missing out? Are we missing something that makes us dig a little deeper in our own walk with God? Ask, what what am I missing there, right? Gets us to ask the questions we should have been asking all along. So verse 13, but, there's always a but, but others in the crowd So some people are wondering, they're asking the right questions, but there are others in the crowd ridiculing them and saying they're just drunk, that's all. Can I tell you, this is one of the most encouraging passages in the Bible. And I know it sounds really negative, but I took (laughs) encouragement because even on the day of Pentecost, there were naysayers. Even on the day of Pentecost... (laughs) There were naysayers. You will never see 100% buy-in, even when the Spirit of God himself appears with power and fire and flames and other languages. There will always be some hard hearts that have something negative to say. I know that sounds really negative, but it's so encouraging to me because sometimes I torture myself over the one person disagreeing or criticizing or not believing when there are hundreds who are encouraging and are believing and are seeing life change through discipleship, even through my ministry, and yet I'm focused on the one who has something bad to say. Essentially, this is just the Bible reassuring me that haters are going to (laughs) hate. They did then, and they will now, and it doesn't make what's happening any less real or effective. Jesus had people leave him too. Jesus, Christ, had people leave him too. Just feels good to know that sometimes. But look, Peter doesn't waste this moment of awe and wonder. And I think, I think this is what most of us do. We see the people in our lives a little bit curious Asking questions about this Asbury thing, maybe, or, you know, what's going on in your life. And instead of using that moment, jumping on that opportunity, we waste it. We hide our light under a bushel, the Bible says, right? Because maybe they won't agree, or maybe they'll make fun of me, or maybe they'll say I was just drunk, 
I was just gullible. It's a cult. <laughs> right? We're afraid of that ne negativity. But like I said last week, over half of Americans right now, the statistic is, according to those statistics, more than half of Americans are open spiritually. Since COVID, they're, they're looking for something more. So you have like a 50-50 chance that someone is negative, but also a 50-50 chance that some, something amazing is going to happen from that experience. Someone's going to be open to it at the very least. They're going to approach it positively. Can I confess something to you all? I am often afraid to tell strangers what I do for a living. Because just picture this moment. I don't look like a pastor, just in general. So it's a surprising thing. People have this picture in their mind of what a pastor is, and I don't fit it. So it's a, a surprise, generally. But I can usually immediately see in their eyes how this conversation is going to go. So I brace myself a little. Oh, what do you do for a living? Hi, I'm Candace. I'm a pastor. And immediately, their expression gives them away. It's, they're either going to be negative because they don't like religion, or anything to do with it. Not immediately rude, usually just like, oh, okay. I'm going to get out of this conversation as quickly as possible. Um, or they apologize for something they said earlier in the conversation. <laughs> that happens a lot. And I'm like, don't, not, you can't offend me that easily. Uh, or it's negative because they don't think women should be pastors. That's another common one from Christians. And then they still want to get out of the conversation as quickly as possible. Or it's positive and they're curious oh, I've been looking for a church in this area. Where are you? You know, tell me about your church. Or it's positive and supportive because they go to church somewhere and they're like, yeah, good job. That's awesome. So still 50-50, right? It's either positive or negative. Why be afraid of it? A negative interaction probably won't change much for them or for me, right? They're still going to leave stubborn and ignorant about what we do and fine, I'll still be a pastor getting to do my favorite thing on earth. Not going to change much, right? But a positive one might change everything for them. And it might encourage me too, right? So why be afraid of it? Don't waste the moment. He did not waste, Peter did not waste this moment. If you have an opportunity to share the gospel, do it. Decide now that you're going to do it. Don't wait till the moment to say, well, I'll feel it out. No. You will feel afraid, and you won't do it. Decide now that you're going to do it. Always be ready with an answer for your faith, the word says. We were talking about this this week in home group, and Aaron was actually saying how people always approach him. You wouldn't think he's a very approachable guy. In fact, he's told a lot that he's not. But for some reason, people approach him in like the grocery store or when we're out and about. Like I'll walk away for two seconds and every darn time I come back, he's in conversation with some person. And he's usually inviting them to church. Like I'm carrying all kinds of groceries back to the cart and he's like, oh yeah, this is my wife Candace. We passed her up at, and I'm like, oh, okay, we're doing this now. Uh, wasn't in that mode. So he, he attracts people to talk to him and Almost always it leads to an invitation to church. People in our home group were like, why does that happen to you? That doesn't happen to me. You know why I think it happens? Because he's going to ask him to church. Right? So the Holy Spirit leads people to him 
because he's going to ask him because he's going to get there somehow. It always leads, all roads lead back to come to Freedom Valley with me on Sunday, right? They don't come to me because God knows I'm going to chicken out. Why would that? Why would he send them to me? Right? So he gets the ones that are seeking. Decide now that you're going to be that person, that you're going to be open to it, and maybe you'll get them too. Peter does that here. He's ready to provide an answer to what is going on. Remember, this is the guy who denied Jesus three times. I just need to remind you of that one more time because this is not natural for him. He's a bold guy. We see that all throughout. He talks a big game, but he hasn't always had the walk to go behind it until now. Okay, tension is still very high in Jerusalem, but instead of Peter running away and hiding or denying Jesus again, instead he preaches to the crowd. In verse 14, we see him step forward with the 11 other apostles, but it's him that shouts to the crowd. Listen carefully, all of you, fellow Jews and residents of Jerusalem. Make no mistake about this. These people are not drunk, as some of you are assuming. Nine o'clock in the morning is much too early for that. I love how practical he is with that. No, what you see was predicted long ago by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people, your sons and daughters, and daughters, and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions, and your old men will dream dreams. In those days, I will pour out my spirit, even on my servants, men and women alike, and they will prophesy. And I will cause wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and clouds of smoke The sun will become dark and the moon will turn blood red before that great and glorious day of the Lord arrives and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. People of Israel, listen. God publicly endorsed Jesus the Nazarene by doing powerful miracles, wonders, and signs through him, as you well know. But God knew what would happen and his prearranged plan was carried out when Jesus was betrayed. With the help of the lawless Gentiles, you nailed him to a cross and killed him. But God released him from the horrors of death and raised him back to life, for death could not keep him in its grip. Peter preaches the gospel because the Holy Spirit will always point to the gospel. It's it's what I call the commander's intent, meaning it's the mission, not a secondary mission. There can be other secondary missions. God wants to enrich our lives in all ways, but the gospel will always be the first and foremost mission of the Holy Spirit. I say this so clearly because we sometimes get this wrong. Sometimes we begin to worship the effects of the Holy Spirit rather than obey the Holy Spirit. We get it all twisted, right? For example, sometimes we like the feeling and the effect of the Holy Spirit presence for ourselves, that we try to manufacture it, and it's just, it turns off non-believers. They, they see something not authentic happening, and they're like, ew, right? Why would I want that? I don't, I don't, I don't want that. There will be, right now with, with the Hasbury Revival thing going on, there will be people that come along and want to claim it's happening to them too. <clears throat> They'll manufacture something that isn't there, And people will be disgusted and weirded out and turned away from the gospel rather than towards it. The Holy Spirit doesn't do that. His heart is for the gospel. So if it turns people away from the gospel, he's not in it. Now, this isn't a blanket statement. Some people are going to be turned away no matter what, like we see in this passage. 
There will always be those. But I mean, in general, everyone. <clears throat> when it's real, people are attracted to it because that's what the Holy Spirit actually does. He convicts people, pull, pulling them toward Jesus, not <laughs> giving them guilt and shame and pushing them away. The Holy Spirit doesn't produce selfishness, so it's not for you necessarily, but it's for you, you to minister to others effectively. If it's turning off non-believers in mass, you've probably ventured out of the territory of the Holy Spirit and into a selfishness territory. I've seen, like, for example, deliverance people. Mike and Jody do this amazingly. I'm definitely not talking about them, but people who are very into delivering people will sometimes start to worship the experience of casting out a spirit rather than the Holy Spirit himself. They get addicted to that. And it's amazing, right? It, you, I can see how it happens. I've seen people also get addicted to like just the worship. Like they want more worship, worship all the time, nothing but worship in the church. I wish we could just worship all day long. And yes, it's great, but there are other ways God speaks. <laughs> Sometimes God wants you to, to get more into the word. Or he wants you to minister to others. Or he wants you to fast, pray. Like, there are other ways of interacting with him. It's not just one thing. And when we get addicted to the one thing, we miss the whole of what the Holy Spirit has. And very often we miss the gospel being preached, specifically. Just this week, someone genuinely asked me, not not with a hard heart, but genuinely said, why are Christians some of the most judgmental people? And it was with a heart of genuinely wanting to understand, which I give her credit for. Because <laughs> I, I, I had to get real with her, and I said, look, I, honestly, I agree. Christians can be some of the most judgmental people. And she said, really? Thank you. She was worried I was going to, like, get mad. She said, why, though? <laughs> Because it's easier to jump through the hoops. It's easier to, to adhere to religion than it is to have an actual, genuine, thriving relationship with Jesus Christ. Jesus will change you from the inside out. Religion just wants you to change your outside. Right? And that's easier. It's easier to, to volunteer at a food bank once a week than it is to actually take a homeless person under your wing and, and love them and disciple them and, right? That's like an all-encompassing whole life experience. I can just volunteer at the food bank, right? And that makes me a good person. See the difference? Jesus taught the Good Samaritan, which in literally that story alone, there were religious men, good people, hurrying to get to a church service, Walked right on by the Samaritan, the, not Samaritan, the person hurting in the ditch, right? The Samaritan was the one who picked him up, put his plans on hold, took him to a equivalent of a hospital today, paid for him to be there, took responsibility for him, right? That's the difference. It's easier. That's why they're judgmental. Because it's easier to jump through hoops and then pretend the world is beneath them than it is to actually change, to humble your heart, to give yourself to the gospel with everything you have. That's hard. Our focus is off. Right here, Peter is laser focused after having just been baptized in the Holy Spirit. He's laser focused on preaching the gospel 
testifying to the gospel message is first always. When it is, everything else falls into place. And when it's not, nothing else is right. Peter goes on, and just for the sake of time today, we're going to skip to verse 36. So let everyone in Israel know for certain that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, to be both Lord and Messiah. I wish that I could help everyone hear this with the same ears that the Jewish people would have heard this in. The Messiah, looking forward to the Messiah, was everything to them. They thought they knew all about it, and Jesus was not it. Okay, so to say that they crucified the Messiah was like the biggest diss on the planet. I wish you could feel that. We can't quite put ourselves in that moment and feel that. But Peter's not pulling punches here is what I'm trying to say. He says very clearly some very offensive things (laughs) to the people who would be most offended by it. He's not pulling punches. He's not only not denying Jesus anymore, but he's actually blaming them for the death of the Messiah. Here's why this is important. It is actually a very crucial component of the gospel message that we are sinful. (laughs) To accept the gospel... You have to accept that we are at fault for him being on that cross. We are at fault. We are not worthy. Probably at least two times a week I answer a question like this. Somebody saying, I I did something horrible. I felt like I had Jesus and, and I even had the Holy Spirit. I was walking with him and then I did this thing and now can he leave? Am I even worthy to have him anymore? And I have to look back at them and say, no, of course you're not worthy. Not because of that thing you did, but because none of us are worthy ever. I'm not worthy, right? Lindsay's not worthy. Suzanne's not worthy. Aaron, nobody sitting in this room is worthy today. We don't deserve him at all. We don't deserve the Holy Spirit. Nothing you could do or not do changes that fact. And it's something you have to accept to receive the gospel fully. That's another reason why Christians are judgmental. (laughs) We think we earn it somehow. And the rest of the world just hasn't. And how dare they? If they only did the things I, if they only went to church every week, they would, no. (laughs) It's a gift. I do not deserve it. And there's nothing I could do. That would make me deserve it. I I will never be good enough. We have to accept that fact first before truly accepting the gospel because otherwise we will be trying to earn it over and over and over. And that's where religion comes in. Religion appeals to us so much because it's a set of rules to live by that make you right with God. The problem with religion is that there's no amount of rules you can live by that will fix your sinful, selfish heart except Jesus. The Jews had like 600 rules. They kept adding and adding and adding to them over the years and nothing helped. It wasn't working to make them right with the Father. They were as callous and hard-hearted and judgmental as ever. But at least they were clean. Jesus said things like, yeah, you need to pay your tithes, but also what about kindness and mercy? (laughs) 
Right? What's the point of sacrifices when you're religiously abusing people and trampling all over the poor and marginalized? What's the point? Jesus literally said, God doesn't want your sacrifices. He wants your heart. Do you really think that's what God wants? You jumping through the hoops. But that often seems easier than changing our hearts. When we can confront the fact that we are not worthy and never will be worthy, then we can accept the gift that is Jesus. That is the message that the Holy Spirit will always trying to be telling us and telling through us until the day Jesus returns. God is a gift. He wants to give you a gift. And that's the first thing that Peter does here when he was baptized in the Holy Spirit. Peter's words pierced their heart, verse 37 says. And they said to him and the other apostles, brothers, what should we do? Because knowing the gospel requires action. Believing the gospel requires action. If you believe, what are you going to do about it? If you don't believe, you won't do anything. If you believe, this question has to come up. Brothers, what should we do? And Peter replies in verse 38, Each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is to you, to your children, and those far away, all who have been called by the Lord our God. So we can see here, too, that it's three separate moments, right? Repenting and turning to God, being baptized for the forgiveness of our sins, and then receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's the process we're leading people through. Each and every partner of Freedom Valley, certainly, but each and every believer should know this process and not only how to get yourself through it, but how to lead others through it. It's a mandate from Jesus himself, but also it's because we know how good life is walking with him. We know how amazing it can be to have the Holy Spirit living within us, to be able to speak his words, not our own, to pray for the sick and see them healed. It's an amazing thing to get to walk with him. And if you truly want others to experience that, you have to get familiar with this process. One of my favorite parts of, of training people to go on missions trips like we're doing right now with the Tanzania trip, is teaching people how to share their testimony, how to share the gospel, and then watching them squirm while they do it for the first time. It's super fun. Because to see them come out of that, it's a life-changing experience. You gain that boldness that comes with the Holy Spirit and sharing the gospel and your story. It's an amazing thing. And it's a necessary thing. Uh, Lindsay Goodnow said to me this week, I think she's back in kids today, but she said when she was younger and she gave her heart to Jesus, there was no follow-up. No one discipled her. No one led her to the Bible or taught her how to be a follower of Jesus. And she said, that's why start class is so important. That's why all the follow-up we do at Freedom Valley is so important. People need that. I totally agree. People need that. And you, each and every one of you, are not only called to be a disciple, but you're called to be a disciple maker. Right? The church is here to help you through that process. 
to be the hub that we can all encourage each other and then get sent back out into the world to make more disciples. First we receive, like we talked about last week, and then we testify to others. Verse 40, just to finish up this passage, says, Then Peter continued preaching for a long time, strongly urging all his listeners, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. Those who believed what Peter said were baptized and added to the church that day, about 3,000 in all. It's a good day in a preacher's book. It's a good day. When we all commit to doing this, when we commit to pursuing the Holy Spirit and then testifying, spreading the gospel message, we will see record numbers come to know him. No doubt about it. We will see an explosion of growth not just in the church, but in our own lives as well, because we are called to testify. That's the job. Are you ready to do that job with me, Freedom Valley Church? Because we specifically here are called to be a vibrant, passionate, selfless church who changes the world with a message of the gospel. Nothing else we do here is capable of changing the world than the message of the gospel. Right? No amount of pretty lights or good musicians or preaching will do that. Just the gospel. That is the most important part. And today, I just want to encourage you. If you, first of all, if you don't believe, I want to encourage you today to give your heart to Jesus wholeheartedly, holding nothing back, fully give him control. But secondly, if you've already done that, I want you to just go home this week and practice preaching the gospel. Not from a stage and with a microphone necessarily, but practice. What, what would it look like if somebody approached me in the grocery store? How would I get the conversation around? How would I love somebody at work toward the gospel? What if, what if I offer to pray over the sick at work? What would that look like? Like practice, like think through these conversations. So I guarantee you, once you do and you continue to pray over the people in your life that need to know him, God will open up some opportunities for you. If we're all, each and every one of us are committed to that. Remember the numbers I quoted last week, the people in Adams County that need to know Jesus. There's like 68,000 unchurched people just in this county alone. The harvest is plentiful. The workers are few. When we increase the workers in the field, we get more harvest. That's the biblical principle here. So will you be a worker with me? That's my question. Yes, amen. Hallelujah, Candace, that was good. <laughs> Father, we thank you and we praise you for this message. Thank you that we get the, the example of the Acts Church to learn from. Thank you that we can see them going through this and sometimes making mistakes and not being perfect, but learning from that experience and really being effective at spreading the gospel like wildfire through our world. Thank you for them specifically because we can credit our salvation back to them. God, use us in that same way. Use us here in Adams County, in York County, in the surrounding areas that we would each go out into our world like a wildfire for the gospel. You would equip us, train us, disciple us, 
so that we would know how to pray for the sick, so that we'd have the boldness to share the gospel, and that we'd be able to come back together in this house and celebrate those things, encourage each other with those things, help each other through the discipleship process. In Jesus' name, with heads bowed and eyes still closed today, maybe you'd respond to the first. And you'd say, I... I have never given my life to Jesus wholeheartedly. I'm maybe have believed kind of, or I'm, I'm on the outskirts, but today I just want to boldly say, maybe for the first time or it's been a really long time, but I just want to boldly say, I believe in Jesus. There is an element to our salvation that requires response, remember. Requires response. You have to do something. You have to speak it out loud. You have to raise your hand. You have to respond to it in some way. So today the question is, do you believe? And if you would say, yes, it's, it's my first time believing or it's been a really long time, would you just raise your hand? I believe in Jesus. I'm in is what we call it around here. I'm into following him. Keep those hands raised for just a moment if that's you. I'm into following Jesus. I accept his forgiveness in my life choose to live his way from today forward. If you're watching online, you can also text the number on the screen. I'd love to help you through that decision and have that conversation with you. Okay. Secondly, if you would say, I, I know I need to preach the gospel more in my life. I, I need to practice this. I, that's, I, that's my goal this week. I want to do that. I'm going to practice <coughs> sharing the gospel with my friends, with my family, with my coworkers, whoever it is. But if that's you, would you just raise your hand? I want to practice that this week. I want to pray for you specifically. Awesome. Keep those up. Father, thank you for each and every hand raised. God, right now, I just pray that you would fall on their lives like never before, that you would anoint their hands, their feet, their tongue, that everything that they say and they do in those specific instances of opportunity that you would just be in those moments with them, that it would be your words they're speaking, not their own, that even through their mistakes and the way we bumble through it sometimes, that you would be in it and that we would each and every one of us see a friend, a family member, a coworker, somebody in our lives come to know Jesus because of us, us preaching the gospel. Anoint this body with new gifts and talents, Father, that we'd be able to walk confidently into our world outside these doors and love people to Jesus. Help us pray for the sick. Bring out healing gifts within this body. Show us miracles and signs and wonders out in our communities, God, that, that wonder would spread through our community like wildfire. And that it would come from our worship of you, our wholehearted devotion of you. God, help us give that control back to you. Light the fire in our lives and help us testify your name everywhere we go. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Amen. Can you give Pastor Candace some love if that meant or ministered to you? We are called to testify. Amen. What a calling. And the Holy Spirit fills us so we don't have to go do it ourselves. Isn't that good that he didn't call you and then said, see ya. <laughs> he said, I'm going with you. I'm going in you. Amen. Amen. That's great.
Eric is back there or somebody's going to be back there for a 20-second takeaway. We would like to hear from you. I'm sure God spoke to your heart. And would you please, please share with us. One more thing, just seeing Brother Tim's smiling face. <laughs> Something he reminded me of him. Something reminded me of what he said at home group. And when he goes into a room, he asks, Father, would you show me somebody I need to minister to? Instead of going in there wondering whether anybody likes you, are you going to be accepted? He goes in and says, Father, show me who I can minister to. Isn't that a good one? That's a good one. Would you stand with me? Yeah, would you bring that up? I want to pray over you, Colossians 1, 9 to 14. And, and meditate on this. But as we pray this, there it is. That this is what God wants to do in us. And Paul was speaking this to the Colossians. So we have not stopped praying for you. Since we have first heard about you, we ask God to give you complete knowledge of his will and to give you spiritual wisdom and understanding. Then the way you live will always honor and please the Lord and your lives will produce every kind of good fruit. This is for you. All the while, you will grow as you learn to know God better and better. We also pray that you will be strengthened with all his glorious power so you will have all the endurance and patience you need. May you be filled with joy, always thanking the Father. He has enabled you to share in the inheritance that belongs to his people who live in the light. For he has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son who purchased our freedom and forgave us our sins. Amen. That's the prayer for this week. Thank you for worshiping with us. We love you. See you next week. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you made a decision to follow Jesus, please let us know by going to fv.church slash I am in. And remember to download our app for more content and helpful links.